Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, Monday the 30th of May. Call Nathan Rarere, I hope. Coming up, we will hear how red tape and barriers at the bank are stopping Māori from building papakainga. The Minister of Fruit and Veggies, Glenn Forthyst, is here to tell us what's in and what's out in the veggie section. Uh, there's an absolute treasure trove of documentaries too at this year's Doc Edge Festival. We'll tell you about the best of them. And there's snow on the slopes and international tourists touching down. Now Queenstown businesses tell us they just can't get the staff to see them through what should be the boom time. I'm sure we've all watched a great western movie when they come when you're down to your last bullet. That's what we're crossing our fingers for, but who knows. Thank you, Peter. Atamaria, everybody. Uh, we begin in Australia this morning uh, with the new Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, says that the former Liberal government's decision to publicise the interception of a Sri Lankan asylum seeker boat on Election Day undermined the country's border security and put lives at risk. So it went down like this. Just hours before the polls in Australia closed, voters right across Australia received a news alert text when they opened it and read it. It stated that an illegal boat had been interceded Accepted and then signed off by advising voters to keep our borders secure by voting Liberal. The ABC's Andrew Green reports. At the Prime Minister's official Sydney residence, no sign of the current occupant who's moving out. Scott Morrison's lying low on a day the ABC's detailed one of his final acts in office. Thank you very much, I appreciate that. A push to publicise an asylum seeker boat arrival on election day. Here we go. This represents the final desperate acts of a dying government. It did make our borders less secure. It's serious in that it risked lives. Last Saturday, as Australians were casting their ballots, the Australian Border Force had just intercepted an asylum seeker boat from Sri Lanka near Christmas Island. Australia is resolute. Behind the scenes, Mr Morrison's office was pushing the commander of Operation Sovereign Borders to publicly reveal the operation before it was completed. In the early afternoon, the Prime Minister broke with years of government policy, deciding to discuss the on-water matters. There has been an interception of a vessel en route to Australia. That vessel has been intercepted in accordance with the policies of the government. Around the same time he spoke, a brief statement appeared on the Australian Border Force website confirming the interception. Then the Liberal Party began sending millions of robo-text messages urging voters to back the government and its tough border policies. There's no evidence that I've seen of, uh, of Scott Morrison having done anything wrong. The Albanese government has ordered Home Affairs Secretary Mike Bazzullo to investigate the controversial move which occurred during the election caretaker period. We want to understand the circumstances of this matter being put into the public domain. Scott Morrison took great pride in being the immigration minister who stopped the boats. In doing so, he famously refused to discuss on-water matters. But in the final hours of his prime ministership, that secrecy was no longer convenient. That's the ABC's Andrew Green there. It's nine and a half past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. On the Indian subcontinent, our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's speech at Harvard University is making waves. And in Afghanistan, the Taliban and the UN Security Council are at odds again over the right to education of women. I asked our correspondent in Pakistan, Kasvar Klazra, about how Jacinda Ardern's speech was received in Pakistan. Well, Jacinda Andrews 
have won millions of hearts in Pakistan. Let me tell you, Pakistani appreciated Jacinda for her remarks about former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. As you know, Jacinda appreciated Ms. Bhutto's wisdom for proposing an international association of democratic countries that would use observer teams, foreign aid, and economic sanction to promote democracy and uh, discourage dictatorship. So the Pakistanis were really happy after she mentioned former Pakistani Prime Minister Bhutu during her address, and it was all what I can tell you at the moment is the Pakistanis are really happy for what she said or what she addressed Although I understand in Pakistan, whilst they're happy with Jacinda Ardern and what she was saying, they're not happy with the price of petrol in Pakistan. Tell me, tell me about about what, what it is at the moment. Well, Pakistanis are not really happy. Rather, people in Pakistan are criticizing the government following unprecedented highs and uh, invoking the name of India former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Yet again, slammed the Shabazz Sharif government after the federal government hiked the petrol and the diesel price by part of these 30 per liter. And the people were really very angry, let me tell you. And in, uh, uh, while addressing, while criticizing the government, Imran Khan has uh, said that in sense of government has not pursued the deal which his government, you know, uh, had tried to strike a deal with Russia for 30% cheaper oil. And, this, uh, and uh, you know, the price act by the incumbent government had provided an opportunity to its uh, strong opponent to criticize the government once again. So Pakistanis are really not very happy. But Imran Khan is happy because uh, this decision by the government of Pakistan has provided him an opportunity to criticize Shabazz Sharif government once again. Ah, in, in Afghanistan, if we move to there, I see the Taliban pushing back on statements from the United Nation over restrictions imposed on women. But in the last few hours, there's been a protest in the capital, Kabul. What's happened there? Well, you have rightly pointed out about two thousand, about two dozen Afghan government took to the roads and streets in Kabul on on, on Sunday against Taliban's harsh restriction on their rights. So Taliban are back to scare. Let me tell you, there is no doubt about that. And since seizing power in August last year, the Taliban have rolled back the marginal gains made by the women during uh, two decades of US, in, US intervention in Afghanistan. But the good thing is, women are not going to are going to get suppressed by uh, the by the Taliban, and women have started coming out to the streets. And yet, uh, you uh, you. Uh, you've rightly pointed out that the 2000, uh, you know, the women came to the states and women are forced to cover faces. Their schools have been closed and they cannot even travel without the men from family. Can you imagine that? So this is what the uh, this is what has prompted uh, the women there in Afghanistan to come out of the states for their rights. And they and it is just a beginning. I guess there would be more protests on the roads and streets of Kabul very soon. Yeah, I can't imagine that. Finally, Pakistan's longest-running music show proving extremely popular in India. Tell us, what is Coke Studio? Well, Pakistan's longest-running music show produced by beverage giant Coca-Cola featured uh, studio-recorded performances by some of the country's 
top famous artists. And the good thing is, uh, recently released, Sori Sang has done remarkable job by bringing two hostile nuclear armed neighbors together. The song I, I just uh, spoke about has broken the barriers of language, religion, nationality, and touches the hearts and love from India. And this is what is uh, making the both sides happy because, you know, the people of uh, people across the border really love together, but it's the government of two sides which have done adverse things as well. But this song has done what the democracies and millions of other people could not do since 1947. And so the people from the both sides have appreciated the Cope Studio for making a song that the millions of Pakistanis and, of course, the Indians love together. This is what I can tell you at the moment. Yes, uh, that's Kazvar Klazra in Pakistan. It is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radadi. Always keen for your feedback on, on anything. Uh, you can uh, text us on 2101 or get in touch the old-fashioned way on the email, up at rnz.co.nz. But uh, we have a story coming up later on about Doc Edge, the documentary festival. And uh, I got excited last night thinking, ooh, what's some things? And then I was trying to go through and trying to pick my favourite documentary to tell you about, but I couldn't think of which one was actually my favourite. I got a bunch of them. So what what is your favourite doco, 2101? Is there one that you just adore where you're like, oh, I love that one, I want to watch it again? Um, I can think, I can give you a good recommendation for one. It's even on YouTube, I think. It's called The Devil at Your Heels, and it is the story of a Canadian stuntman who wants to jump, jump the St. Lawrence Seaway in a jet-powered car. And it's great because he hasn't actually ever driven faster than 75 miles an hour before this starts. So that just puts you in the realm of where we're going, right? It's a documentary that you watch after a little while going, is this even real? And then you facepalm and go, oh my God, this is real. So anyway, 2101, tell me about these. Is there one that you absolutely love? Uh, To the US now, and uh, you might have seen these, uh, protesters picketed an NRA meeting over the weekend, thousands of them, demanding action on gun control in the wake of 19 students and two teachers being shot and killed by an 18-year-old gunman at Robb Elementary School in the town of Uvalde. It's the latest in a string of demonstrations across the United States. CNN's Rochelle Turner reports. And prayers in front of Discovery Green. Demonstrators held signs like this and made their voices heard. It's the second day of the NRA meeting. The George R. Brown Convention Center and people like Tiffany Williams say something needs to change. How many kids did you kill today? When it comes to gun laws. We just had a shooting in Uvalde that claimed the lives of 19 children and two adults. Those were teachers. One was a grandmother. And guess what? They, we can put the assault rifles into ages 18 and up, but you can't drink an alcoholic drink till you're 21. NRA members like Scott say guns are not the problem. People are. He says local entities fail to protect the kids in the school. Crime is crime. You know, if they're going to commit a murder, they're going to commit a murder with anything they can get their hands on. So I think the true thing really comes down to is it's not the weapon it is, but the intent and the person and how society we handle that from the mental health aspect, early intervention. At today's demonstration, police kept a group called South Texas Proud Boys away from the crowd. Many frustrated about another mass shooting. That's now left the Uvalde community heartbroken 
and hoping for change. Pray for a change of heart, but we need to also pray for a change of legislation. It's a terrible tragedy, but it was the person behind that gun that did it. CNN's Rochelle Turner, it is 5.18. Well, they held on to their land through war and confiscations or fought to get it back, and now they can't build on it. Long-form journalist Alice Stewart has done a deep dive into how red tape and barriers at the bank are stopping Māori from building papakainga. She visited Ngāti Whātua Orakei, who have built 10 new whare for Komatua to live in collectively. Here's Trust Chairperson Marama Royal on the highs and lows that they've faced. This is our Komatua village and as you can see all our kaum, all our elderly, all our Komatua live in, in these homes which is wonderful. Close to the marae, they're on their papakainga, on their whenua and they're all cousins. Sometimes there's a brother and sister living next door to each other. Everyone's related and it gives them a common space mm. for them to be just the great Komatua that they are. Yeah, It's an absolute sense of community. Um, we've got whanau that have been living out of Auckland uh, for a number of years who have returned home and they've been able to get into their homes which is great so and so the design of these custom built custom built talk me through that they actually the komato actually designed these themselves mm. we gave them basically a blank sheet well you know and said how would you like your whare to look and they designed the homes even to the pattern see the pattern on the driveway which is a, you know a pattern that you would see on our tukutuku panels they've put it into the you know into their design so each house of solar panels we've utilized different form of energy obviously keep the power bills down for our komata we've also put water tanks in so we catch all the rainwater. everything is open plan and so they have walk-in bathrooms walk-in showers so it just it caters for all their needs around, you know, any mobility issues that they may have. They're open, they're big. And what was the motivation behind wanting to build these? There was a need. We needed to ensure that we could bring as many of our whānau back. I mean, there's our marae right there, back as close to the marae as possible. We had the whenua. And it's all of these ones here that are living in these whare, they did all the hard work for us. This is almost like a thank you, an acknowledgement for all their blood, sweat and tears that they had to do in order to fight to get our whenua back. So this is, yeah, an acknowledgement. Mm. This landscape has such an important history. Absolutely. So does that kind of add an added layer? Of- yeah, uh, you know, when you can, when you can build a home and the viewers to look across to the city of Auckland, which was gifted by our tūpuna Apihai Tekawa to Governor Hobson to build, when you can see that from where you're living, it is pretty special. We can see our maunga, maunga kiakia from here, maunga whau. So all of those sites of significance are just so important to us and we need to maximise what we, you know what land we've got to house our whānau. That's a priority for us, is to, is to build warm, healthy, affordable homes for our people. I mean, we're in the midst of a housing crisis right now. Do you think this is the solution? Oh, it has to be, eh? Of course it has to be. I mean, if we can actually house our own people, it frees up other homes out there for, for others. And, you know, our people are telling us they want to come home. Let's talk about, I suppose, the challenges and the barriers that you face with um, building these komato housing and also just building papakainga in general. Obviously for our whānau, especially our first homeowners, the difficulty can be around raising the money to put deposits on on homes and to even get a mortgage from a bank. So um, obviously the banks won't lend money to those that are building on Papakainga because the land is not included in the build. And so we have to be really innovative. Our whairawa team, our commercial arm, have to be really innovative in how we can do that to assist our whānau into getting into homes. So we've basically had to guarantee some of the... And we're we're okay to do that Mm. because... 
how else would we use our asset base if we can't do it in that way to uplift our whanau into home ownership, which is a dream of ours. My mum's rented all her life. She's never owned a home. She's rented all her life because she just couldn't afford it. Yeah, so we've had to be very innovative in doing that. And those, that can be challenging, of course. They're trying to fit a circle into a square, and it's not going to work. You know, they have to be more flexible, more agile around how they work with iwi. Because iwi have the, the aspirations of their people. And of course they want to aspire to make sure that those dreams are, are met. But when you've got red tape or bureaucratic processes that stop you, people get frustrated and just give up. Or they don't have the means to be able to challenge it. And so they back away. It's, it's all of that stuff. Would you support kind of an iwi bank? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Why do you think it would work? You know, you know, Māori are really smart, smart people. And I think if iwi came together and put a iwi bank together, it would not be set up like how the current financial institutions are. It would be based on aroha, manaki and tiaki. It would be whānau first. That's Marama Royal and you can hear more on Morning Report. 23 past five is what we've all agreed to call this time. I'm Nathan Raradio with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, Queenstown businesses tell us their latest crisis and we're joined by the director of the Dock Edge Documentary Festival. Well, they are standing in the rear. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your We go to the fresh produce markets now, and as winter's getting nearer, uh, you'll notice change in the produce section. Uh, the man to cover that for us is the Minister of Fruit and Veggies, Glenn Forsyth. Morena, Glenn. Morena, Nathan. How are you? I'm very good. It's my favourite fruit as far as uh, the smell of laundry powder goes. Tell us about lemons. Lemons, very big. You've been talking to the growers, getting, right, getting your hands dirty, hands in the dirt. Who have you been talking with? Yeah, we need to give lemons more airtime today. They truly are a majestic fruit, and Managing Director of First Fresh in Gisborne always updates us with the latest and greatest. He reminds us it's winter, so it's the time for New Zealand citrus to shine. Mandarins and limes have been in full swing for a while, and now New Zealand lemons are hitting their straps. Lemons got bad press just before Christmas. Do they? Oh, Glenn. Glenn got bad press. Glenn got bad phone reception just before Christmas and after. Are you back? No, he's not back. Okay, uh, so we're just we're just going to phone Glenn back right now. I don't remember the bad press at all of uh, lemons uh, prior to Christmas right. or even. Oh no, he's back now. Sorry, Glenn, you were just saying that lemons got bad press. What was the bad press? What did they do? Yeah, sorry about that. We don't pr- produce many in summer, and we're at the mercy of imported shipping arrivals, so prices hit very high levels. Oh. But no problem Problem now. Good supply, easing prices, and good value for money right through till September. I mean, have you, have you ever visited the Chef's Compliment store in Telpo? I was just about to, but no. Oh, it's amazing, a foodie's dream, but we've got these incredible citrus hand squeezes there. Avanti is the brand. I mean, they must be made at the IRD department as they turn your halves inside out and they leave it bone dry. But we go through dozens of lemons here for hot lemon and manuka honey drinks nightly. But Ian's favourites are squeezed over freshly caught fish and lemon honey for the sweet side of the spectrum. And heck, we used to eat a ton of that on toast as kids at our, at our grandparents' place. Yeah, love good lemon. Um, as, as well as that, people like to buy the capsicums, but we're in for a bit of a shock in the South Island. So everyone in the South Island, sit down for this. Tell us about the, the capsicum prices. 
Yeah, things are getting rather scary in some departments. New Zealand garlic is terribly short. Single capsicums are hitting $5 each in the South Island. And beans, cucumbers and courgettes are disappearing fast. Queensland used to fill these said vegetable shortages in a flash, but with their recent horrific weather events, it's proving very difficult at present. It is back to the basics, so thank goodness root crops rule fine. The Vivaldi gold washed potatoes are underway and the agrius spud is very popular this year. And not surprised as that's a magnificent specimen. The best way to buy your agria value for money is in 5 kilo or 10 kilo bags as opposed to loose. Spaghetti squash is available and so is the butterkin, which is a hybrid between a butternut squash and a pumpkin. And the skin is fine to eat on those as well. Our spies in Christchurch were buying broccoli for 169 yesterday at some greengrocer stores and leeks for 199. Uh, we've got an oldie, but simple leek and potato soup recipe uh, was shot through to your team this morning. And leek and potato soup, soup, it's a tasty filling and very low cost in season soup to make this week. Perfect. Uh, tell us about apples. What's the hot variety at the moo? Yeah, here we go. Uh, fruit. Well, one fruit that isn't $5 each, the way they were a few years ago, are avocados. As expected, we have certainly fixed our insatiable demand on these this year. What were in good supply today, although mostly imported, are bobby bananas, tropical gold pineapples, Australian grapes, and New Zealand person money has, has come back. So you could make a fantastic fruit, fresh fruit salad out of that quartet. The easiest way we find to cut up a fresh pineapple is to slice it up as discs firstly, like round steaks, then cut off the skin as you move around the outside of it with a sharp knife, keeping the disc flat, and then finally cut the flesh off in chunks towards the hard middle core and discard that when it is um, when that's all that remains. Now, a new apple on the floors this morning, which is the last variety yummy pack, is the lemonade. It reminds me of the old-fashioned Golden Delicious, which is its grandparent. And they say biting into one of uh, these is like taking a sip of fizzy, refreshing homemade lemonade. Beautiful. Glenn Forsyth, thank you very much, sir. And remember, thank too, you. if you would like to just assert your dominance around everyone, just eat a pineapple like an actual apple and just maintain eye contact as you bite into it. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's like when you meet those people that eat the skin on a kiwi fruit as well. They're like those people that take pills without water. Freak me out. Uh, on this day in 1431, having led the French army in a momentous victory over England at Orleans during the Hundred Years' War, Joan of Arc was charged with hearsay, hearsay, Cross, cross-dressing, sorry, see, cross-dressing and witchcraft. And on this day, in, uh, she was just burned at the stake. And the cross-dressing one was an interesting one because they actually charged her with wearing her military uniform uh, that she had used. So she comes back, they say, don't do that. It's a capital crime, it's a repeat offence. Uh, then they throw her in jail. And so she had to... Um, uh, because of her feminine clothing, well, there were all sorts of sexual attacks that happened on her. So they put her back in men's clothing and then they said, Oh, look at you, you cross dressing. Now we're going to burn you uh, at the stake. Wow. Uh, born on this day, Peter Carl Fabergé, he who makes the eggs. because they were first made as uh, Easter egg presents, uh, presents, I should say, for the royal family. 57 survive today. Eight eggs are currently still unaccounted for. Virtually all of them were manufactured uh, between 1885 and 1917. On this day in 1908, one of the greatest voices in cartoons, he was the voice of 
pretty much everything for Warner Brothers. Bugs Bunny, Woody Woodpecker, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Barney Rubble, he was Mel Blanc. Uh, Benny Goodman, a jazz musician born on this day in 1909, if you know CeeLo Green, so happy 48th birthday to him. And uh, also on this day in 1980, Stephen Gerrard was born, the former captain of the Liverpool Football Club. Of course, Liverpool, the current Carabao and FA Cup champions. It is 27 and a half to 6. It's business, it's business time. That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. Joining us now from our business team is Giles Bigford. Kia ora, Giles, how are you? Kia ora to you, Nathan. Long time no talk. Yeah, good to hear your voice. Tell me about the rich list. Well, this is put up by National Business Review, NBR. It used to be called the rich list. Uh, they just now just call it uh, the NBR list 2022. Oh. The rich list, of course, uh, was just a, a straight tally, and it wasn't all that accurate, but it was a tally, a best guess of how much the richest 100 uh, had. Um, and, of course, you know, because a lot of them, should we say, are discrete about their uh, activities or about their earnings, uh, you could never be sure that it was too accurate, other than we always know, and it's the same again this year, that Graham Hart, who uh, owns Carterhold Harvey, a big packaging group called Reynolds um, around the world, uh, he owns, uh, he's worth about $12 billion. Now, the old list used to be, I think, predicated on the, the greed is good principle which uh, of course never went really down well with a lot of people this one is for the second year they're talking about uh, people how they earn their money how they amass it but you know what they do they are creating wealth they're creating jobs Um, it's not just a, a dollar sum at the end of the day although having said that Dollar sums are quite prominent in it, um, yeah. and, and and they've split it up rather than being just one hundred, uh, you know, from one to one hundred. It's now five different groups of twenty. So you have people who are in technology, people who are in industry, people who are in investment uh, and property, uh, and uh, the some of the uh, biggest gainers this time round, uh, and it will come as no surprise really. Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, the filmmakers, uh, they've joined the ranks of the billionaires well and truly. Estimated $1.7 billion that they're worth. And that follows the uh, sale, of course, of their stake in Weta, uh, which has done quite well. That was a good investment, wasn't it? It was. It was worth two points. That, that whole mucking around with the camera on the weekend. Stop oh, that, Peter. Get a job. You'll never go bloody anywhere. Well, he had a job. He was a qualified was a, printer. Yeah. <laughs> he, used, he, he used to be at the Evening Post when it existed here. Yeah. And, and Think as you more say, about printing a paper newspaper, Peter. Come that's on. Right. That, no, that's right. A job of the future. That's well, well and truly. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mum. Thank you, Dad. Yeah. Uh, I'm not listening to you. But there are other people who, who are in there. Uh, it's always notable to see that people with property uh, are rapid uh, gainers because of the increase in property values. Um, but there are some others. Uh, for instance, the winemakers. Uh, you wouldn't think, well, winemakers, of course, they'd be in there. Well, well, one of them's actually gone out the back door, which is well-known, George Fistinich. Um his company, Villa Maria, the parent company, Villa Maria, mm. uh, 
went into receivership uh, a year or so ago, so they're out of there. But some people have done quite well just by selling. For instance, Mark Stewart, who's a Christchurch businessman, um, he had the premium pet food company Zeewee, and he sold that for a billion dollars. So he's into the list as well. So all in all, I'll tell you one name that will uh, get a few people jangling, but the NBR defends it, is Simon Henry, the man from DGL, the one who had the... Oh, uh, Nadia Lim's friend. The very unpleasant things to say about Nadia Lim. Mm. Um, But uh, he's worth, well, his company is worth around $900 million. The company says Kiwis from all walks of life made their feelings well known about him. NBR believes they are able to make up their own minds. Uh, They're not going to uh, uh, condemn him. Um, They say that in the end, they take a holistic look at the holders of capital. uh, And it's clear that Henry... Uh, has to account for his own views. So if we if we combined them all, do you reckon there'd be a dollar of tax paid? Uh, is, uh, is, is this like the states, or have they cleverly used accountants to make sure hey, I got a rebate? Well, I think we should would say that some will undoubtedly have. Um, they would have taken professional advice. Right. Yes, they would have done that. I don't doubt that any of them uh, are paying what they believe or what they've been uh, assessed as as having to pay. (laughs) No. Anyway, Giles, thank you so much, sir. There you are. That's the latest of the Rich List. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. Barry Guy, who joins me now to talk about the world of sport. Kia ora, Barry. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. I've uh, actually just realised I've walked in with the wrong jotter pad and it's blank. Have <laughs> 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 you got time for me to run back? I'm going yeah, to go, go off memory here. You do Goodness. that. You do, no, no. You, do you want to go and get it? No. Uh, right. Okay, right. Um, sad news for um, horse the people who, who like to watch the equines run around there. That's right. Well, the old ones anyway, because yes. probably uh, there's only about a quarter of your audience that know who Lester Piggott is. The uh, famous uh, British jockey who won um, a record number of uh, races there. He was uh, 86 or something, I think. He uh, he uh, has died. Um, possibly he was uh, better known on this side of the world because he ended up going to uh, prison for fraud, I think. It was, uh, oh, do you know, you know, I, know so, uh, his, I know his name, mm. uh, but as, as when I was young and I remember watching Alas Smith and Jones and not the 9 o'clock news, they quite often <laughs> would make jokes about Lester Pickett. And I always yeah. used to think, man, that's a cool, it's just a cool sounding name, yeah. you know? Yeah. He was he apparently was a, quite tall for a jockey. Was he? So he uh, oh. Yeah. yeah. But he, could be, he could be a West away. Indian opening batsman, Lester Pickett. You know, I think he'd do, yeah. he'd do very well there as well. Um, yeah. other, other news happening around there. That's very sad news there for there. I know that um, we were playing in the sevens, uh, the New Zealand yeah, just sevens. Got, just been beaten by Aussie in the final. Uh, went Duh. to extra time, so it was a bit unfortunate. But um, a uh, Australian with a wonderful moustache scored the winning try. Uh, and there was a couple of guys there that had mullets as well. So uh, well done to the Aussies for uh, winning that. Um, they possibly won't win any awards for, uh, in my opinion, Style for points. fashionable design or facial hair <laughs> or anything like that. But so well done for that. Uh, another good uh, weekend for our kayakers, Dame Lisa Carrington. Uh, Ryan Fox got beaten in a playoff for the Dutch Open. Uh, so he finished second there, but I think pretty sure that secures him entry to the next uh, major, which is the U.S. Open. Black Caps were beaten 
three days out from the first test by a county selection. Uh, and Sergio Perez of Red Bull has won the uh, Monaco Formula One Grand Prix, which then takes us on to the IndyCar, which I think starts in the next half an hour. Scott Dixon is on uh, pole for about the fifth or sixth time. Scott McLaughlin's a bit further down. So uh, even though they're going around in a circle pretty much, it's quite an exciting race to watch as they go over 350 kilometres an hour. Yeah. So uh, I'll quickly head back to the office, find my correct shot of pad, and uh, get stuck into that so I can watch uh, a bit of that. (laughs) And condolences with the uh, Calgary Flames, beaten beaten by Edmonton. So, oh, uh, just the worst team. Yeah, to sorry, lose. I brought, brought that back to you. Sorry. Thanks, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good day. Okay. There we go. Now coming up in the show is Calgary lost. No, sorry. I'm Nathan Radity. You're with First Up in RNZ National. It's 19 to 6. Still to come, the borders are open and tourists have touched down, but Queenstown says it still needs more. We'll find out what it is. And a treasure trove of documentaries await you at the Dock Edge Festival. We'll hear more from the festival director very soon. It's the hi-hat that says the professionals are on board. It's the morning report team all set to go after six. Corin Dan is uh, the ambassador for what is happening on the show today. Kia ora, Corin. Hi, kia ora. Good morning, everybody. Uh, well, we'll go to the US, obviously, where US President Joe Biden has gone to the Texas town of Uvalde to comfort the victims uh, from that terrible shooting. Uh, we'll also, too, check in on uh, our Prime Minister, who's still in the US, ahead of the likely well, the visit with uh, Joe Biden, I think, what, Tuesday, New Zealand time. There's been a bit of, I suppose, turmoil in the, in the uh, travelling camp with, uh, I think, the head of MFAT, was it, who might have caught COVID, but He's so far... COVID and going on still. So far, the visit is ongoing. Uh, we'll also touch with China, uh, the issues in the Pacific, which are ongoing there with the China's foreign minister continuing the visit and the meeting uh, scheduled in Fiji with the new eight-country pact that it's pushing for. We're also going to look at rugby. Uh, Scotty Stevenson's in to talk about the uh, Super Rugby Finals. Oh, that, like, you know, the the last game there with Moana Pacifica, I, yeah. I, I did a sulk watch because when, um, when Keeper got sent off earlier, I went, oh, that's bugging it, that's terrible. And then I did the look at the score. <laughs> later they won and then I felt like I'd ripped myself off with that one yeah no that was impressive that was good to see and mm. encouraging for the future uh, the Highlanders are, was was pretty amazing that they've scraped through yeah. uh, you well know. it's the way the maths works and yeah, what happens if they go and win the comp <laughs> well good for them it's one of those <laughs> the old day we didn't we time that here in the tortoise there you go that's well, what that's that is right. the but they only had four wins in the whole season or no, something you know the tortoise had a week to get through had some spates on board no, good on them if they can beat the blues or whoever they've got to beat to get there and mm. you know good luck to them yeah, beauty. Thank you very much, Corinne Dan, uh, with you up after six with Susie Ferguson. If you've been mentioning it this morning, the Dock Edge documentary, uh, it's a festival that kicks off on the 1st of June. It goes through to the 10th of July. It's got a full online festival as well as in-person screenings in Auckland, Wellington at Christchurch. So the festival has more than 70 feature-length films as well as a whole heap of great short films too. Uh, for the first time since COVID hit, international guests will be returning to the festival, which means some in-person screenings will also have Q&A with filmmakers. To find out what's in store for audiences, I asked the festival director, Dan Shannon, what were the most interesting docos on offer this year? Nathan, you started with the hardest question because (laughs) there are 113 films in the festival this year. Oh, wow. 
which is a lot. It's much more than previous years, but there are so many. That's why we divided them into sections so people can find easily what they're looking for. For example, there is the music section, thank you for the music, or being oneself, which is all about identity, searching for identity, fearless or true or false, and we are the world, which is films from around the world. So what I'm hoping for, that really people can browse the program, take the time, and find the content that they resonate with and they like. And sometimes challenge yourself with something that really you don't expect to maybe see or go to. So the way to browse that is just Google up Doc Edge, D-O-C, and then E-D-G-E, and then have a look through there in the categories? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are other ways to do it. The website is the best way to start. There is a flip book of the actual program. There is a mobile version to do it on the phone. As you know, the festival is a hybrid edition this year, so all the films are available online on the virtual cinema nationwide, but there will be in-physical screenings in Auckland, Wellington, and for the first time in many years in Christchurch, which we are very excited about. Dan, I was, you know, I had my little list of questions here. I was thinking, like, well, it must be hard at the moment. The supply chain issues have affected everything. And I was wondering about documentaries. But by the sounds of it, there is a ton of documentaries for you to choose from. Why do you think that is? It's a really good question. I mean, look, with documentary, the beauty of it is a lot of filmmakers use the lockdowns and COVID to be more creative in the way they make films. So, for example, we saw an increase in animation documentaries this year, and there is a section about that. Also, people went into archives and, and really spent the time where they couldn't be out there putting together amazing films in different ways that otherwise they maybe wouldn't have. But alongside them, we do see the normal, if you, if you wish, uh, documentaries that we get at the festival every year on various topics. And as you know, also with documentary, it takes a long time to put a film like this together. So some of them have started way back, a few years back, and finished it during the last couple of years. So we certainly haven't seen a shortage in the submissions that we had over 1,300 submissions this year, and certainly not shortage actually or very, it was very difficult to put the lineup and to decide because there's so many good films out there. That's an incredible amount. I'm quite staggered actually by how much that is. And I'm thinking here too, you know, if we have a look around the streaming services that you can get at home at the moment, you know, when I, I think it started out, it was like, oh, this is a great way to just have movies or what have you. And then it was TV, but documentaries are hugely popular and I think they sustain a large amount of the subscriptions. Why do you Mm. think that documentaries appeal to the viewing public so much? Well, look, I think we are interested in real-life stories. We love to learn and to be educated, but also to share experiences and talk to other people about real stuff and especially at this time and age. So documentary provide that exact thing, and that's what we see in theatre, where people stay after the film and want to talk and want to engage. And what we've done with the virtual cinema this year is to provide a similar experience at home, so people can have a watch party at home, but not only with people in their fan house and in the house, but also on a virtual hub where they can go on a scheduled time to meet the filmmakers and meet other audiences and interact with them. For us, it's really important that people feel that they are part of the festival, even if they watch a film at their own home or on their own screen anywhere. Who who of the filmmakers are you most excited about, or guests in particular, are you most excited about having for the festival? 
There are several. Actually, you're, you're bringing a good point of having international guests. I mean, when we started working on this festival, we, we didn't think we will have any this year. And suddenly the border started opening very quickly. So we got excited, but at the same time nervous. You know, suddenly we need to have the budget and we have to have the ability to bring filmmakers back to the festival. And we are going to have several of them coming from overseas, including the filmmaker of a film called Ethica from Australia, which is the Julian Assange story told by his father. The filmmaker will be here from Australia. There will be filmmakers coming from the US, from Europe. And it's wonderful for us to bring them back to New Zealand to meet audiences. But let's not forget the New Zealand filmmakers as well. I mean, they worked hard on their films and they are just as much looking forward to interacting and meeting audiences as the international ones. Yeah, it's the Dock Edge Documentary Festival director, Dan Shannon, and it kicks off on the 1st of June. Go and be a part of that. Well, the mountains are white with snow. The Aussies are arriving unimpeded by COVID instructions and the business owners are breathing sighs of relief. Not massive size of relief though. Uh, the Queenstown sector, uh, sector uh, say that they still need more, this time pointing to a staff shortage that some locals say has reached crisis point. And as Matthew Tunison reports, some say it's being made worse by new government regulations that are meant to help. Bergberger is a bit of a Queenstown institution, judged by Lonely Planet to be one of the world's best burger experiences and absolutely smattered with five-star reviews online. It should be boom time for them. But Stephen Bradley, who runs Bergberger and three other Queenstown hospitality joints, says while he's delighted to be welcoming customers back after a tough few years, the staff shortage poses another major challenge. Like everyone down here and across New Zealand, we're, we're struggling to um, fill it, fill positions. I think most people down here would be running somewhere between 50 to uh, mid-60% staff shortage, so we're all at least a third short. So at a time when they'd like to be all systems go, they're instead having to reduce their opening hours. Yeah, look, it means long shifts. Uh, it means not being able to open all the hours we would ideally like to. Uh, like everyone, we've got contingency plans, so hotels, you know, aren't opening rooms up. Some, you know, restaurants won't be open certain days. So the only thing you can do to protect everyone, to protect the customer experience and your staff, is to reduce your hours. Mm. We got no doubt the cavalry will be coming, and we will see backpackers coming. We will hopefully see some Australians that want to have a winter here. It's a matter of when they get here. Yeah. I'm sure we've all watched a great Western movie when they come when you're down to your last bullet. Um, that's what we're crossing our fingers for, but uh, who knows? He says the problems have been exacerbated by a recent shake-up of work visa regulations. The new accredited employer work visa requires businesses to register if they want to recruit migrant workers, and the process is proving arduous. Yeah, at the moment, uh, it's an administrative burden. There's costs involved when we just need to get uh, you know people on the ground. We had a system that worked well for many years. This has been signalled for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, it's at the worst time possible that we're changing over to new systems and suffering the delays. Stephen England-Hall is chief executive of Real NZ, which operates the Cardrona Alpine Resort and the Treble Cone Ski Area. He says that while in the long run the new rules should work in the employer's favour, the timing isn't ideal. There's lots of good 
principles behind it, but then when it comes to the reality, what it does for most organisations is it just adds another administrative task, another bit of tape to the process. And yes, they're short staffed too. We're deeply committed to developing, you know, New Zealand resource, New Zealand talent, and investing in Kiwis and growing them in the industry. The challenge we have right now is just just not enough people. There's just not enough New Zealanders around to fulfil on the demands that we need, and so we are without doubt. In a, in a resourcing crisis, so to speak. From an operational point of view, we are short, you know, many dozens of key employees, um, you know, whether they be chefs or, or cooks um, or front of house or engineers and so forth. We, we need those people. They're critical to our operations. And, of course, if we can't find those people, then we can't open up all of our experiences or all of our services. Queenstown Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Ruth Stokes says staff shortages are mostly affecting the hospitality, tourism and construction sectors. Queenstown, despite its relatively small size, has a huge demand for workers. We have around about 5,500 vacancies a quarter. So huge numbers for us, 28,000 jobs when we only have 22,000 ratepayers, but that is the, the nature of an environment where it's all happening. So she says businesses are getting creative in trying to entice people to come and spend a winter working in New Zealand's adventure capital. You know, New Zealand's been closed for a long time now and getting that message out to the world that we are open uh, is something that... Uh, we're going to have to work very hard on. Uh, if you consider there were 18,000 working holiday visas held by people who hadn't made it into New Zealand when we shut the borders back in um, 2020, uh, those people have already had their working holiday visas reissued. But of that, we've only had 76 people come into the country. And people who do head to Queenstown for a working holiday can expect a pretty decent pay packet too. Wage inflation in Queenstown in the last uh, year has been almost uh, twice the national average. In fact, our wage inflation uh, was about 12% last year. So, no, you can certainly earn some good money here and have some fun while you're doing it. Minister of Finance Grant Robertson moved to assure businesses that the new visa rules will ultimately make it easier for them to bring in the workers they need. That accredited employer scheme means that over time they're going to have to spend a lot less time processing uh, individual applications. And so while there might be a little bit of paperwork at the beginning, it'll pay off as we go on and they're able to, to bring the right people in at the right time. Tourism Minister Stuart Nash says there are no current plans to offer incentives for people to come and work here, but there is a campaign to attract Australians to do so. Qantas is already flying direct to Queenstown from Australia, with Jetstar to follow suit on Thursday, followed by Air New Zealand next month. Matthew Tunison with that report. Finally this morning, some of your feedback. Uh, we were asking about documentaries that you love. The Story of India uh, by Michael Wood is one. Here's one. Joe the Roaster says Dogtown and Z-Boys. That is a great one, the one about um, skateboarding there in Santa Cruz. John Reynolds, uh, without doubt my absolute favourite is Once We Were Kings. When we were kings, yes. Here's another one. Uh, Between the Folds, doco about origami. Thank you very much, Katrina, our uh, course expert behind the panel there. I would like to recommend one called The Smashing Machine. Pretty violent to start with, but an incredible, incredible story that has tangents that shoot off where you're like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Morning Report is next. You can listen to First Up all day on the podcast. Just download it. It's wonderful. Otherwise, if you want live, we'll be back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor.